okay, we're not advertising Ikea at Pilgrim. I just want you to know that. But I thought it was interesting as I'm preparing uh, a short series here at Pilgrim. I'm going to have to put this bottle over here. It's, it's fake, by the way. I don't think any baby could ever get through that. But anyway, um, I, this video popped up this week as I'm doing my message prep, and I thought, well, this fits right in with what we're going to be talking about uh, somewhat of the, over the next few weeks here at Pilgrim uh, Church. Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here today on this beautiful uh, day. It's sunshine and warm temperatures. Uh, it's great to be gathered together as community. Uh, in that IKEA video about the plant being bullied, I want you to take away from that the power of our words. And over the next three Sundays, I want to do a short uh, series of just kind of talking through what I'm calling the uh, Christian basic communication or communication basics for Christian. Yes, I am riffing off of the CBC for the, this thing here, but we've changed it enough. I think we're not going to be an infringement. Um, but yes, this idea of our communication basics as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. And this morning is going to be more of a teaser to sort of get into the series. Next week, I'm going to be talking very specifically about what causes conflicts and four uh, things that we can learn how to steward conflicts well as believers, really practical stuff. Uh, and then the last Sunday, we'll get more into the power of our words for blessing and uh, building up as well. But today, I want to begin to just broach the subject of this idea of what our words do. If we understand the idea of spiritual warfare, and the New Testament is full of this, we understand that there are powers uh, and principalities at work uh, in the spiritual realm that impact our natural world, impact our lives, impact our governments, impact all kinds of things. But we also know that that spiritual warfare is not just out there, the power of sin, the devil, and death, as it were. Those are certainly powers that work that the New Testament tells us. But that there's also power at work within each human heart. Uh, that the war zone is there as well in our human hearts. We deal with that until the life of the world to come. And as we follow Christ, we are being shaped and formed, but we have to participate in that formation, that grace enables us, but then we choose whether or not we continue to walk in that path of continued uh, receiving and breathing His grace and letting the Spirit transform us over time. And so those elements we want to drill into in terms of our role in using our mouth for good. One of the things I've learned over the years, and I'm preaching this sermon as much to myself as I am to you, so if you feel convicted, know that I'm feeling convicted as well, that my mouth and your mouth is a war zone, that we can build up and we can tear down, and that so often we default to the communication that we learned in the homes we grew up in, in the culture around us. And as believers, we're called to actually shape our world by how we are shaping our thoughts and the words that we speak and the thoughts that we meditate on. And if we forget the power of our words and our thoughts, we just let whatever comes in influence us. And those things can come in from media, they can come in from those around us, and we just assume that we take everything as sort of given, when in fact, as Christians, we're called to challenge the givenness of the things around us, the thoughts that we have, and the words that we speak, and begin to ask, how uh, are we letting Jesus' life and teaching shape them and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our midst? And so this morning on Mother's Day, we're going to introduce this. Some years, by the way, I will preach a Mother's Day sermon. I did one at the uh, Evergreen Campus of Care this, uh, uh, this past week, so I felt like I got my Mother's Day sermon out for the year. But some years you'll get that. But this year, say Happy Mother's Day and dig right into a new series. Amen? All right, all right. So I want to begin by reading to you a passage from James 
And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there or in your app, uh, go to James. And we're going to look at James chapter 3. We're going to bounce around the books of James and Matthew. We'll have several verses today that we'll be looking at. But to begin this series, I want us to begin to look at James chapter 3, and this is a very famous passage. If you've been a Christian for a very long time, you've probably heard this passage. If not, uh, enjoy it, because he really speaks to some powerful things here. So James chapter 3, James is in the New Testament, um, a book of Hebrews. If you find Hebrews, James is right after Hebrews. Hebrews is a larger book, so it's easy to find. Uh, If you're like me and you navigate by size and shape in terms of the uh, scripture, then that's how easy way to find it. So James, we're going to read this, and then we will uh, dig in a little more. If you're able to, would you stand one more time so I know that you're awake and uh, uh, the juices are flowing, the blood is pumping, all of that. Uh, And we're going to read a few verses here, starting at verse 1, and I'm reading from the NET translation today. And so James says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we will be judged more strictly. There are offices in Ephesians 4 of uh, the pastor, teacher, apostles, prophets, uh, and evangelist, and he, so he's talking a bit about that. And then verse 2, he says, For we all, including teachers, stumble in many ways. If someone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect individual, able to control his entire body as well. Verse 3, James says this, And if we put bits into the mouths of horses to get them to obey us, and then we guide their entire bodies, Look at ships too. So he's giving us imagery here of how horses are controlled, those that ride horses. Verse 4, those look at ships too. Though they are so large and driven by harsh winds, they are steered by a tiny rudder wherever the pilot's inclination directs. Verse 5, so to the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it has great pretensions. Think how small a flame sets a huge forest ablaze. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue represents the world of wrongdoing among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the entire body and sets fire the course of human existence and is set on fire by hell. And to drive it home, verse 7, For every kind of animal, bird, reptile, sea creature is subdued and has been subdued by humankind. But no human being can subdue the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in God's image. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. These things should not be so, my brothers and sisters. And last two images, a spring does not pour out fresh water and bitter water from the same opening, does it? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a vine produce figs? Neither can a salt water spring produce fresh water. Let's pray. Lord, as we crack open a series today and and go deeper in the next few weeks, I pray that your presence would be here. And God, I know that in our lives it is so easy to speak words of death and to justify it. I'm just a realist. And to never make the turn of what does it mean to declare your word over our lives, over our city, over our church, over our families, over our friendships. And so, Holy Spirit, I can't change anyone's heart, but breathe in this place today. Illuminate the word, O God. Come and have your way in this place for this people in this time and this moment. In Jesus' name, if you're willing to, say amen and be seated. Earlier or later on in James 4, and we'll talk more about this next week, James says this, where do the conflicts 
And the quarrels among you come from, he says, is it not from this, your passions that battle inside of you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and envy and you cannot obtain. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly so you can spend it on your passions, spend it on yourself. That's a progression of an idol there. And so this morning, I want to talk about some foundational things about the power of our words, and we can't cover it all in the short time that we have, but I want to begin to sort of lay in some basics about the power of our word and, and what Scripture talks about and what we experience. Even in the experience of the Ikea plant, without bringing in Christianity at all into that thing, we see that there is something about our words and uh, that there's power in them. And so often we think, what we say doesn't matter. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. That is a lie, a full-out lie. We usually, when we're saying it, we're internalizing hurts. We're burying hurts. We're trying to pretend that stoicism is biblical, when in fact we're called to wrestle with our things and then reorder emotions properly, learn from them, because they're always telling us something that we need to respond to in some way, not deny, not suppress. So let's talk about some basic foundations about our words this morning. Thank you for joining me. Number one is this. When we look at the power of the word, I think the the first place to start is with God, the creator of it all. The first point, and I just have five simple points today. The first one is this. God creates the world and even humanity by his spoken word. In John 1, 1, we see this idea of God creating the Word, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Talking about Jesus and the creation that happens. In Genesis, the story of creation, God begins by speaking forth creation. And this is important to note because the author of Genesis is telling us, if you, as you read Genesis chapter 1 and look at 1 and 2, and I'm not going to read it all for you this morning, but I encourage you to go and look at those passages Sometimes we get bogged down of, was it seven literal days? Was it seven epochs of time? Was it seven eras? Was it it a theistic evolution or some variety of the three? Was it recreation on an old judge creation? And we miss that the main point of this is comparing the the ancient Near Eastern myths of other cultures with what God is revealing uh, to Moses and to the, the ancient children of Israel that God is not creating out of a war. God is not creating out of uh, killing another God and the blood being spilled and therefore humans spring out of that or all the other ancient Near Eastern myths of a violent conflict. But Yahweh, the one true God, is so powerful that by simply his speech, he creates new life and new realities. And so if you think about that, then we go a little farther in Genesis and we learn that humans have been given the command to name creatures. There's this naming ministry that's given to all people, the power of speaking over other things in creation to to give them and help them form and shape identity and to understand use. And we see this idea of the power of naming begins to be passed on to the first humans. And, and then eventually it goes uh, amiss because at the Tower of Babel, we, we read just a few short chapters later, they are all speaking the same language and in that they decide that they're going to build a tower as if you can build a tower of material and enter into the spiritual realm. Uh, but they're going to do that and they're, because they're all unified and these words bring unity, but now for a purpose to begin to ascend heaven and try to challenge God at his godship. And so what does God do in the Tower of Babel? He confuses their language, hence we get the word Babel, right? And Babylon, and he sends them. It's also a story that speaks to why do we have all these different languages, and it speaks to other things, but the main thing that it's talking about is this idea 
of also our pride and our misuse of words. And so God says, okay, fine, uh, I'll upset the apple cart. A real fun thing to continue on with this point number one about God creating out of his word is that by acts, God, again, does something where he gives languages to people that they did not seek nor desire, but for the unity and the purpose of sending the kingdom of God everywhere cross-culturally, which is very interesting, a reversal of Babel in some ways. So number one, remember that the word of God is powerful. God is still speaking. We are told that in Christ, all things hold together. In Colossians, he's the living word. And so point number one is remember from Genesis and throughout creation that the God that we serve and worship creates and reforms and brings forth life by the power of his word. And we should pause there and think about that for a moment. Sometimes we want to rush and we need to do this and we need to do that and we need to try to fix this. And sometimes the, the place that we need to start is what are we speaking? What are we listening to? What is shaping and forming us? And so my challenge this morning in point number one is what is shaping and forming you? Is it God's word over you? You are beloved of the Lord. You are created in his image and likeness. He has come to redeem you. While you were a yet sinner, rebelling against him, denying his existence, he's still reaching out to you by his love and the mission of the living word of the Son of God. Hear those things. Foundations for understanding the power of the word. The second thing that we've already alluded to in number two in the outline And if you came in this morning and you're new, and every newsletter as you come in, you can get it from the welcome team, the ushers. Uh, There's usually an outline that you can follow along, and then we unpack these more in our home groups throughout the weeks uh, following each message. But number two, as we are created in his image and likeness, he also gives us what we might call semi-autonomous power, meaning that God gives you real power uh, to, to do things that he doesn't control. You have some uh, uh, autonomy, some separation from God in order to use that power. He doesn't demand that you speak one way or the other. He gives you the choice. So he gives you the semi-autonomous power with your words and that your words have real spiritual power that affect things in the world that you can see. Let Let me unpack that a little bit here this morning. That the power of your words in prayer... And your thoughts, again, Paul talks about having the mind of Christ, that we are clothed with Christ, and that we cast down every pretension, every imagination that sets itself against the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that, that we, we have authority, and, and our words matter, and, and our words affect things then in the, the natural realm as well. To put it this way, some of the spiritual things that Christianity speaks of is that the spiritual and the physical worlds are enmeshed, and they overlap. And you know in the natural world when you can do certain words, if, I, if a child is about to run out in the street and I say, stop, the child hears that and responds, most likely, hopefully, uh, and they stop, so they're not hit by the car. You see, the, that word, that thought, affects an action. It's a whole philosophy of language I could geek out on about this, but I'll spare you this morning. But in the spiritual realm, we're also told that those words affect things in the natural because they overlap and they're enmeshed. In fact, you are spirit and body woven together, Scripture tells us that God jealously desires the spirit that he has placed within you, that he wants to be in relationship with you, but he doesn't force it. He desires it, and he calls us to that. So when we speak of spiritual power, keep in mind that the spiritual and physical worlds overlap and are intertwined. And you ignore the spiritual world at your peril. You ignore the power and the authority of the words that you're praying and confessing and listening to at your own peril because you are being formed. You are being shaped by everything you engage with. Talk about liturgy is worship. 
the worship of the church, but there are also secular liturgies we participate in. What are you filling your mind with? What is, what is informing your thoughts? And so there's power in that. Genesis 1.27 again tells us that God created us in his image. Male and female, he created them. We see Adam's authority in naming. And to go a little deeper with this idea of spiritual power words, I, I think of the call that God sent to Jeremiah uh, to make him a prophet in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah 1.9 says this, The Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. Now he's having a vision. He's having an image of this. And he's relaying it to you. He said, Behold, the Lord said, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, and then the turn to build and to plant. There's this sense that what comes out of our mouth has authority to affect things in the natural. There's a, and, and we see this idea of the twofold aspect of the prophetic office. In the New Testament, it speaks about this idea of our words having prophetic power. One is just in the ordinary how we use our speech. Galatians 5 talks about this idea that we shouldn't be riven by enmities and gossip and strife and division and tearing down and quarreling. And James speaks about quarreling among you. And we're being called to account with that, that those are things that happen because of the speech that we're letting come out of our mouth. And so there's that natural sense of that your words are prophetic and they're building up and tearing down. And the New Testament even takes it a step further beyond the natural, ordinary use of language, which we see in common grace, even in the kids that are cursing or blessing the plant, to the next step of a spiritual gift that goes even farther of being sensitive in prayer that the Lord might give you words that go beyond what you would know in the natural to actually build up, encourage, and edify people in the body of Christ and in the world around us. But even before we get to the spiritual gift of the power of our words in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, we need to remember in the natural that there's something about our character that we have to take ownership of to shape and form. Let me pause for a moment and say, if we want to see life burst forth in our church, you can't be constantly ripping down and tearing and complaining about every third order thing. Nobody wants to be a part of a church where there's negativity. And I'm not saying that that's like that here at Pilgrim, but I am saying that each one of us at different times is tempted to enter in to the ministry of death with our tongues. And we need to be willing to, to let the Lord call us to account on that. Say, Pastor, that's kind of harsh. I know, but I love you. If I go to the doctor and my appendix needs to come out and they never tell me that the appendix needs to come out, but they know it needs to come out because the thing could blow up at some point in the future. And if I died at that point, I would be, or my spouse would be very angry at this situation. If I, as a pastor, just whispered sweet nothings in your ear and just sang you all your favorite songs and just cooed like a dove all of the time, can't imagine me doing that. It's not how God's wired me, but just imagine that. And if your appendix needs to be taken out, and I don't say, here's the thing, this needs to happen in our lives. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what else we do. It doesn't matter. You can dress up my corpse, but I'm still dead because no one spoke the truth about what was going on inside of me. Some of you have a disease, and there's a cure, but you need to hear from a pastor who loves you say, hey, you need to ask, is my mouth being shooting off in all kinds of directions, doing violence and tearing down and destroying over things that I I should need to release to Jesus? I should release to him. Now, there's a right time for prophetic speech, and we'll get into that in this series. 
but it needs to be guarded. It needs to be guided by the Holy Spirit and always in love and in context of hope and building up. And I'm talking about sort of our everyday speech at this point as well. Well, there's more we could say about that, but I want to move to point number three. Are you still awake? Someone is? Okay, all right. This power can be misused. As we've already said, this goes a little more in building on point number one and two. Point number three, the power of the tongue can be misused. If you read about the story again of Genesis, in Genesis 11 verses 1 through 9 of the Tower of Babel, humans use the words to manifest thoughts that we create alignment with or against God's desire for all people to flourish and to be in him to be in relationship with us. And so this idea that we can misuse our tongue. Paul speaks about the misuse of spiritual gifts both in the natural, we can apply it in the natural sense, but we can apply it also in the use of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is called the love chapter. And again, if we look at that for a moment, I encourage you to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He's wedging it between a church where people are using spiritual gifts, spirit-inspired speech in a way that's destructive mostly, and also just their natural gifts. And so he says this, if I speak with the, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, so he's talking about natural speech and then also this idea of spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues and all of these other things where God goes so that that takes us to a new level of effectiveness for his kingdom. He says, even if I speak with the natural languages of those around me and of angels, but I do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I can tell you as a pastor for 20 years that I have seen some people that they can speak well with men and well with angels and all kinds of spiritual gifts, but their love quotient, their character never developed. They were staying as sort of a spiritual teenager their whole life, and they were a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You don't even want to hear from them. There are some people over the years that you develop... As a pastor, not here at Pilgrim, but in other churches where you eventually develop a crazy list because you know that this person is never going to say anything encouraging. They're never for anybody. They're constantly ripping down, constantly destroying. Uh, If God came and smacked them upside the head with $3 million, they'd find something to to curse God about or $30 million or a billion, whatever. They'd find some. They can find the uh, dark cloud in every silver lining. Met those people. Do not be that kind of person. Speak life. Declare the goodness of God. He says, if I prophesy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. Wait a second. Now for the compassionate people, we just need to do more stuff. We need to be, he said, if I give away everything I own, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I receive no benefit. Ah, love is patient, love is kind, it is not envious, love does not brag, it is not puffed up, it is not rude, it is not self-serving, it is not easily angered or resentful, it is not self-serving, it is not easily angered or resentful, it is not self-serving, it is not easily angered or resentful, it is not self-serving, it is not easily angered or resentful. Wait, we got in a repeat loop there for a second. It is not glad about injustice but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And it says, well, but I had all these other gifts. And what if, he said, well, if there's prophecies, they're going to be set aside. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be set aside. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when what is perfect comes, the partial will be set aside. That is the end of the age when Jesus comes again. When 
I was a child. I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I set aside childish ways. Keep in mind, there's a proper childlike faith we're to have that Jesus speaks of. But here he's talking about the use of our thoughts and our tongue and our gifts. For now we see in a mirror indirectly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You can misuse the power of the tongue. Again, Galatians 5 says this. There's a whole list of things we like to focus on in the church. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. But then we forget that most of this list says this. We like to pause there and say, I'm not currently a witch. I'm good. Like in the real dark sense, not in the Harry Potter sense. I don't have an idol in my home. And he says this, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight things that all talk about our thoughts towards one another and our words. And then he adds a few more, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you, (laughs) as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I wonder how many Christians who have just been just ripping down people left and right. And we're Christians, so we usually don't do it face-to-face. I mean, we, if you've become a believer but your mouth hasn't been saved, or at least your mouth hasn't been submitted to Jesus every day, and, and we have to do this, I think, daily, Lord, as the psalm says, set a seal over my lips. And we all sin in these areas, James says. No one's perfect, but are you working on it? Are you we're cooperating with the Holy Spirit? Or are you just in denial? Also, a river in Egypt. Oh, that was awful. Sorry. Oh, that was a bad joke. Some of you will get that later. Um, what are we doing with that? He has these things that he lists here, and he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. If your mouth has been a sewer your whole life and you're claiming to praise Jesus at one hand and you're ripping everything down on the other hand, he says here, I'm glad I'm not the judge, thank you, Jesus, but he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Could it be that in every church there's destructive folks that need to be called out? And, And again, if it's you, let the Holy Spirit do it. And the Lord's gonna say, I gave you a new name I gave you the, my Holy Spirit within you, and yet you refuse. You compartmentalize your thoughts and your words, and, and well, just think about that for a moment. I'll let Paul's words stand. I don't. I'll just let him do his thing there. And he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Well, what are you doing with your tongue? What's flowing out of it? The power can be misused. And I don't stand here as the perfect example. If you want a perfect pastor, you need to get somebody who's dead and stuffed and put them way up on a stage, right? I'm in process as well. But I am in process. Are you in process or have you paused? For there to be new life in this church, we must be people who confess the words of God over our hearts and our minds and over our neighbors, over our city. 
Jeremiah was said to seek the welfare of the city that you placed in and into it in seeking its welfare, you will find your own. How are you speaking over one another? If you're speaking words of death over our elders, if you're saying, oh, I hate that pastor. He's the worst pastor we've ever had and, uh, since 1965. No, I've heard about some of the other ones. I don't think I get the worst prize. Uh, <laughs> anyway, just kidding. They're all good. Thank you, Lord. We're all in process, right? If you're constantly tearing down, oh, I don't like this. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, 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 oh. In order for a church to revitalize and turn around, you've got to start speaking life. You need to say, Lord, bless this place. Lord, bless uh, my, my, my fellow uh, small group members. Lord, bless uh, my neighbors. God, I pray that your love and your grace and mercy would begin to pour out of my mouth. God, I thank you uh, that in you that we are called into new things. God, I thank you uh, that, we need, that you're helping me uh, look beyond what was in the past to move into the future, that I would be someone who would be aware of it, that it would, I would perceive it, and I would see the rivers in the desert happen in this place at Pilgrim Church. What are you speaking over this place? If it's mainly death, you're going to reap death. If it's mainly life, watch out. Because people want to be in a place where there's life spoken over them, where there's joy, where there's peace, where there's righteousness in the Holy Spirit, even if they can't use those words yet. People are drawn to life. People want to flee from that which is death dealing. It's built within us. The power can be misused. Some of you may need to leave this place and do some, some business with the Lord do it. Don't deny it. Do it. Let's get to the fourth point. Are you still awake? We'll be talking about conflicts and, and how to work through them next Sunday. Uh, it's good stuff. But number four, there is something about holy disruption and deconstruction that we do affirm. This isn't some superficial name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, uh, you know, faith church kind of thing. There's something deep about confessing positively, but we also know there is a time for holy disruption and deconstruction, and that is to be compared with, holy disruption and deconstruction is to be contrasted with a negative, just holy, unholy destruction, where it's just leaving chaos and brokenness in its wake. There is a time for naming and denunciation of sin in our lives, a disruption of the Lord that allows for new hope. Again, you may have heard this little catchphrase, this idea that when the Lord comes to change something in our life and speak a hard truth in love, he speaks it in love, and he brings conviction with the path that we need to take in order to bring change. So when the Lord is convicting a holy uh, deconstruction or a holy disruption, he also provides us with the hopeful turn and this next step to take towards new life. When it is the work of the enemy, it's just condemnation. It's just beating down. It's just unholy destruction. There is no hopeful turn. There is no path towards forgiveness and reconciliation. It is simply a blowing things up for the sake of blowing things up versus bringing about new life. So there's a difference between those two. And from a flyover level, it may look the same at the beginning, but where it's going and what it does relationally is very different. So this idea of naming and denunciation of sin is a disruption that allows for new hope to enter in. We talk about the idea of the prophetic imagination, that we need to sometimes speak prophetic words of disruption to get the church back on track. Jesus spoke his harshest words to what we would call nowadays the church. His harshest words were not for the person who didn't believe, who was far from him, but the person who should have naturally affirmed what he was bringing. His harshest words to the Pharisees. 
And he says that they are liars and the father of li- from the father of lies, and they were birthed from the father of lies. I mean, that's hard stuff. Hard stuff. But he does all of it with the hope. We see it in John again and again with the hope that they would respond differently and receive grace. And some do, and many don't. But there is a place. Paul speaks about this particular gift of New Testament prophecy, and he says that when there's sometimes the Holy Spirit will inspire your words to strengthen, encourage, and comfort. In Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, Matthew 16, a great passage where Jesus is talking to Peter and who do you say that I am? He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and said, you know, uh, flesh didn't reveal this to you. It was a spiritual revelation that God dropped into his mind, dropped into Peter's mind. And he said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this is talked about again in Matthew 18, and we're going to dig into that next, next week a little bit, Matthew 18, but this idea of binding and loosing with our words. There's a time for truth-telling that the Holy Spirit empowers us in our small groups and in our, in our twos and threes in our church where we can confess and we can also release one another from the power of sin by speaking forgiveness and working on paths of reconciliation depending on the nature of the offense. But there is power in your tongue. But first you've got to admit that you have brokenness and that it's not all, you're not all holy to the life of the world to come. But then you can receive forgiveness and grace from Jesus and through one another in the body of Christ. So there's authority in this. But that requires some truth-telling to begin with before you ever get to the loosing or the freeing part of it. Let's talk a little bit about unholy destruction just a touch more. There is authority in your words. Would you say it with me this morning? I have authority in my words. And there's an enemy, by the way, that wants to tempt you to use your speech for destruction based on lies with no reconstruction and nothing life-giving being produced. Or as John 10.10 would say, the great commission of darkness, steal, kill, and destroy with our words. In James, we see this idolatry is manifested in our speech. Like we read in James 4, verses 1 through 4, there's a progression of an idol. I desire, I demand, I judge, I punish. And the first three aspects of creating an idol are centered around our thoughts and words not being shaped around Christ's desire. I can't tell you how many times I've experienced in church life, I desire, I demand, I judge, I punish. The enemy wants you to get up on the seat of God's judgment throne instead of being in a real community and discerning the work of God. Number four this morning was holy disruption or unholy destruction. What are you doing? Holy disruption or unholy destruction. What are you doing with your words? So let's get to the last one here, and we're going to land this plane. And if you're willing, say amen. (laughs) Do you speak death or life? Ask that question today, and because you are a prophetic person, Every believer has been given power in their words and also the spiritual gift. Paul says, I desire that all of you would speak in prophetic ways, letting the Lord inform your speech beyond what you see in the natural to declare in new things, to use your holy imagination. Some people like to say, think in terms of pessimism, optimism, or realism. Pessimism, optimism, or realism. These are useful to an extent for sure, but scripture calls us to think and speak in terms of Jesus. Where is Jesus in this? What is Jesus saying? 
Well, regarding the Pharisees condemning other people, he was highly pessimistic. You are sons of your father who is the devil. Eh, that's, that's kind of pessimism, right? In other words, he also talked to others saying, he's not seen faith like this in all of Israel. I mean, so Jesus, what about Jesus? So, so you say, well, I'm a realist. I've heard people say that all the time. And I'm like, but here's the thing about the kingdom of God. We look at reality, but we also look at it through the lens of Jesus' first coming and second coming, both uh, what he's done in the incarnation and in the resurrection uh, and in the cross, and then also that he's coming again one day and we live in between the times. So you can be a realist, but keep in mind, that's not the whole story. There's more to the picture as a Christian. And so we need to be careful about that. Well, I'm just speaking the truth. No, you're not necessarily speaking the truth. You're speaking from your perspective at this moment right now. I need a bigger perspective than that. I need God's perspective on my life. I need God's perspective in our city and in our church. Not just my little snippet right here. And that's why we discern as a body when people say, I have a gift or I've received a word or I see something. We got to look in the bigger picture to begin to work through that. So again, you can start with realism, but you don't stop there. Speaking the truth in love means in relationship and and continuing forward. Well, there's more I want to say, but okay, one more I'm going to give you, and then we'll we'll give you the takeouts. If this was not obvious, let me be Captain Obvious. I think that's a pastor's job half the time is to restate things and to be Captain Obvious, so here I am. We are to let scriptures form our speech and thoughts And our images in our mind, our imagination, what influences our thoughts and our images. I love what Walter Brueggemann says about imagination. And he talks about the prophetic imagination. He says, imagine. Imagine is to utter, to entertain, to brood upon, to describe and to construct a world other than the one that is manifest in front of us. That's that realist thing. The offer of prophetic imagination, speaking about the Hebrew prophets and even New Testament, is one that contradicts the taken-for-granted world around us. Prophetic imagination. So not only do your words speak truths, your words can help create new realities. He talks about this, that this is an effort to imagine the world as though Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we name as Father, Son, and Spirit, is a real character and the defining agent in the world. Are you cooperating with the God who spoke the world into being out of nothing? Are you cooperating in your words and your thoughts being conformed in the image of Christ who declares that we are his children and that he desires to redeem and save and change each one of us? Who desires that men and women everywhere encounter the rootedness and the love of God in Jesus? What are you speaking forth? If it's constant negativity and cesspool and just blah, see, that's, that's a theological term right there again, blah, if that's all it is, and everything seems awful and everything is, oh, oh, it's all horrible, you need to have your tongue, you need to submit your tongue to Jesus and say, Lord, I repent, I turn from using my mouth as a cesspool, as something that is just full of cursing, and maybe you don't think of it that way, but that would be a biblical way to talk about it, as cursing and tearing down, and God, help me to speak words of life, Lord, anoint my tongue with prophetic words of building up, of encouraging, of consoling, Father, I pray that you would help turn my heart, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth's speaks it's really telling us what's deep in your heart and if it's constantly cursing and tearing down and complaining and backbiting and enmity and strife it's telling us what's in your heart what's in your heart is something that you need to say jesus come and make my heart new 
Jesus, forgive me. Enter in once again, Holy Spirit. I've leaked out. The joy of the Lord has not been my strength. God, fill it again. And so we begin this series because I've learned that all of us in my own life as well, we need to remember that there are things about words that the scripture is all over the place in the power of our speech. Verse Isaiah 43 says this. This is what the Lord says. Children are dealing with exile of Israel, are dealing with exile, political uh, uh, abandonment. They're they're dealing with being taken away. And and the Lord comes and speaks to them through the prophet Isaiah. And would to God, uh, Moses said, I would to to God that all of God's people would be prophets. We read about this in the Exodus when the Spirit of God falls on the 70 and two outside the camp, the 72. And then in New Testament when the Spirit of God, Jesus authorizes the 72 to go out and declare the kingdom of God. And we see then in Acts where it says that on your sons and daughters, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my maidservants, manservants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. They will all begin to speak with new tongues, this prophetic power of our speech. And Isaiah is a forerunner of some of that, and he's speaking to the children. He says, this is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, drew out the chariots and horses and the army and the reinforcements, And they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. He says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I will provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The people I have formed for myself, they will declare my praise. There is another power at work, the Spirit of God. Will you align your thoughts and tongue with His Spirit? Will you begin to speak life over your family, over our city, over this church, over those around you, and over yourself? Because He's declaring good things over you. And maybe you just need to start with Psalm 141, which is in one of the ancient prayer books of the church in the evening prayers. Oh, Lord, I call on you, hasten to me. I love this. Oh, Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Come quickly to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be as incense before you and the lifting of my hands as the evening offering. By the way, lifting of your hands. Paul says, I want men, and we could say men and women everywhere to pray lifting holy hands. Here we have Psalm 141, ancient prayer posture was raising hands. It's always okay to raise hands. Get your body involved. It helps align your mind. The lifting of my hands is an evening offering. And then he says this, verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And with that, would you stand with me this morning? Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. If the worship team's coming up, now would be the time. Come on up, guys. Would you say this verse with me? Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So we're reminded in Luke 6.45 that our words reveal our hearts. What's consuming you? What is in your heart? What needs to be tended to in your heart this morning? I tell you this because I love you. Some of you, your appendix of your words is bad. It needs to be changed. It needs to be removed. And I would be, uh, well, in the States, I would be sued for multi-million dollars 
if I did not tell you this for misdiagnosis and malpractice. So spiritually, as a pastor, I don't want to be malpractice. I don't want to be doing malpractice. I don't, I don't want to avoid hard words that are words to bring about holy disruption in order that there's a hopeful turn and new life come forth out of our tongues. What's in your heart this morning? What are you speaking over Pilgrim Church? What are you speaking over your life? I'm a realist. Oh, you got to see that, though, from his perspective, his reality, not just yours. How are you ordering your thoughts and words and your heart around Jesus? These are the questions. In home group, you'll go deeper with those questions this week. And next Sunday, we'll talk about some practical things in part uh, looking at some of Ken Sandy's material, but talking about how do we apply Matthew 18 and go deeper into why we have conflicts among us. Now, my prayer is at Pilgrim that we're not a highly conflicted church. But as we work for change and revitalization, it's so easy to let our mouths shoot ourselves in the foot. Yes, it may be three steps forward, two steps backward, but let it not be two steps forward, three steps backward. We say that again. Yes, it can feel like three steps forward, two steps backward, but we're still moving forward. Let it not be because of our mouths, two steps forward and then three backwards. Father, thank you for what you're doing here. Thank you for these people, your beloved men and women, sons and daughters of the Most High. And God, forgive us for speaking death and curses. May we flourish as a people and as individuals. May we understand that there is some truth in rightly confessing, agreeing, aligning our words with your word about brokenness and about hope and new life. And that out of words come physical, material realities. They start in thoughts and words. Before a plan is written down, before a thing is built, it is so true in the spirit and with our relationships as well. We pray these things. Drive them home in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.